Hey everyone, Yasmin here. Over the course of the next few weeks, we're taking the opportunity to highlight our top episodes from last year. If you're an avid listener or a new listener of the podcast, chances are you may have missed one of these game-changing interviews. I hope you're having a great summer and that you enjoy this week's rebroadcast. We're in a reset mode. We're in a revolution right now. This is the moment to seize. We're calling it the great resignation. It's not. For women especially, we've wanted more flexibility for decades. And now I really feel we've had a year and a half so far of reset. Do you want to go back to what you were doing before? And if you don't, you will have to claim your power and you can start small, claim it, it's there. I promise and assure you, it is burning inside of you. Hey everyone, I'm Yasmin Nori and you're listening to the Behind Her Empire podcast. I'm on a mission to showcase successful self-made women who share honest stories and lessons of what it really takes to create the life you want and build your own empire. If you've been listening to the show, you know, just like you, I've been on my own personal journey to build my empire. And for the last year, I've worked diligently on starting a new business all around helping women get to the root cause of their period problems and hormonal imbalances. If you're suffering from extreme cramps, fatigue, bloating, stay tuned because a little bit later in the podcast, I'll share a bit more about my new company, Bia. But for now, let's jump into today's episode. I want to welcome this week's guest, Jane Werwin, to our show today. Jane is the founder and chief visionary of Dermalogica, the number one professional skincare brand in the world. At the young age of 24, Jane immigrated to Los Angeles and saw a distinct lack of continuing skincare education with the therapist in the US. Without a college degree or network, she set out to launch her own skin therapy education with only $14,000 in a very small classroom in LA. This led her to also develop a line of skincare products and a system of teaching salon owners how to use them, which is now a multi-million dollar international brand with a cult-like following. Under Jane's leadership, Dermalogica has grown to be the leading professional skincare brand used by more than 100,000 skin therapists in more than 100 countries. Dermalogica sold to Unilever in 2015, and the brand continues to be the most respected and requested professional skincare line in the world. Jane also recently launched her book, Skin in the Game, which Harvard Business Review called Brilliant, and it's the go-to guide for readers looking for their true purpose and the opportunity to live their biggest life. We'll talk to Jane about how you can use your unique traits, setbacks, and experiences to create your dream life, steps to looking inward and listening to your intuition when finding your true purpose, how to achieve great success by doing what you love, and so much more. Welcome to the show, Jane. Thank you so much, Jasmine. It's a real pleasure and a thrill to be here. Well, we're excited. I know I told you about this a bit before the interview, but you have been on the top of my list to have on the podcast and with your book coming out and just how much of an inspiration you are to so many entrepreneurs, especially women entrepreneurs. I am super excited for our community to learn more about you and your story. So it's a true honor, Jane. Thank you again. So I would actually love to start off with an excerpt in your book where you say, 
everybody has crappy, awful stuff in their lives. We either bury it or we somehow manage to own it and it forms the way we live our lives. Will this stuff be piling up to stop you from getting to the next phase of your life or will it become the key that unlocks every door ahead of you? So what advice do you have at a high level for women listening today who feel like their baggage is really the main reason of what's holding them back from pursuing their goals and their dreams? Yeah, I think it's a double-edged sword because it is one thing to own the things that have happened to you, and it's another to own them, as people would say, publicly. But here's the thing. The only audience that has to be convinced that what you've been through has made you stronger is you. And you already know that stuff. You already lived it. You already put it in the rearview mirror or... You certainly are ready to put it in the rearview mirror. So it's really about having an honest conversation with yourself and saying, what has happened to me in my life? What are the things that I find so deeply painful or even shameful? And how on earth could they possibly motivate or point me in a direction that somehow is purposeful or somehow speaks to my heart, that doesn't seem possible because it was so perhaps bad. And not only is it possible, I believe it is the very reason you experience those things. In order to give you the tools, the armory, if you want, to use to make a difference in that area. So instead of using those experiences as armor to protect ourselves, use it as almost weaponize it in order to make a difference and move forward. You know, Gavin De Becker is a world famous security expert, and he wrote a book some years ago called The Gift of Fear. And he wrote it from a personal standpoint because he grew up having had a horrifically violent, abusive childhood. And he realized he had developed this ability to be almost feral in reading a room. What was the mood? What were people thinking about? Was somebody getting angry? Was somebody about to do something unexpected? He became like a feral being and he used that ability to lead him into the business of security because he maintains he can walk into a room or see a crowd and kind of in an instinctual, but it's really almost, as I say, a feral way, identify what the thing, what's going on in the room, what's going on in the crowd. So he calls it the gift of fear because he used that dreadful childhood because, and in some ways it's the only way it could ever make sense. And I believe that. I believe that's what has helped me. And I've seen it help hundreds of thousands of women entrepreneurs that I've worked with and taught and learned from over the years. Because through Dermalogica, we sold our product, we educated the industry, the salon professional industry. 98% of all skincare salons are owned by women. And most of us, including myself, don't have a college degree. We don't have a side hustle. We don't have a trust fund or a backup plan. And as with all human beings, we've been through some awful crappy stuff. So I've seen how this works and I know it can be successful. 
Absolutely. And that's why I love your story. And going back to your very early days, I know your mother mentioned five words to you when you were quite young that I really think just shifted your own life and really truly impacted your entire story. So I'd love to hear more about those five words and the impact it's made to you. Yes, the five most important words I think were probably ever said to me in my life were by my mom. And they were learn how to do something. And she said it from a place of knowing because my mother was widowed at age 38 with four girls to raise. I was the youngest of four. I was almost three years old when my father died suddenly of a heart attack. She was not expecting to be a single parent. She was not expecting to be the breadwinner. When she had got married to my father and began their family, she gave up her career and her career was as a trained nurse. But that career, that skill set allowed her to go back to work. And so literally in the sort of span of a week, she got a job working a night shift at the local hospital in amongst her grief. Even though she was grieving, she had to be brave. And she knew that without that skill set, she would not have been able to keep her family together. And therefore, she really drummed into my three sisters and myself, learn how to do something because she wanted to make sure that whatever happened, we would have an ability to earn money, to be financially independent with a skill set that we had learned and therefore could never really be taken away. And she was very specific. It should be a skill set in your hands. Something that you can, well, she used to say your hands, your heart and your head so that you love it. So my two older sisters became nurses, like my mom. My third sister became a lab technician, and I went to study skincare and became a skin therapist. Incredible. She seems like such a role model to you and your sisters, which is amazing. And, you know, I know you became a skin therapist and you actually have a very unique story about moving from England to South Africa, which I absolutely love. So can you share more about that inspiration? Because I think it set you up for just so many more interesting stories to come in your journey. Well, I've learned over the many years that I can trust the universe. And when a universe sort of sends you a sign, I know that might sound like I believe in magical thinking. So it might sound like magical thinking, but I do believe that the universe sends you a sign. I actually think the universe will send you three signs. And in the book, I outline how to watch for them and know whether this is one of those signs or not. So it was the late 1970s, 1978, and I was working as a skin therapist. I qualified in 76, so I'd done my apprenticeship, and and I was working in a salon. And it was the coldest place imaginable. The British winter of 1977 was absolutely bloody awful. And I was living in a studio apartment, and, you know, I was feeding the gas meter, which was my source of heating and cooking, with coins. And It was a pretty dreadful situation. So as usual, I'd run out of coins and I was sitting with every piece of clothing I owned. And I had a boyfriend who said to me, what is the hottest place on earth? Because I have to imagine I'm there. And I look in the Sunday paper and I said, Johannesburg, South Africa was 106 degrees Fahrenheit. And he said, oh my God, I wish I was in Johannesburg, South Africa. And I said, me too. And it was almost like I clicked the ruby slippers because as I turned the page in the paper, there was a quarter page advertisement taken by the South African government, which said, If you have a skill set that we require in South Africa, 
we will pay an assisted passage for you to get here. And it was £40, which was nothing. So we, you know, it was more of a lock than anything. The next day was Monday. Salons are closed. He was a hairdresser. I was a skin therapist. We called up the number and they had 10 professions or skills that they wanted to recruit. First one was a butcher. So I wasn't a butcher, neither was he. Second one was a patisserer. I'm not sure we even quite knew what that was. We knew we weren't one of those. Third was a hairdresser. So, you know, we're in a phone booth in England. And I'm giving the thumbs up. And the fourth was what was called a beauty therapist, what I call our work skin therapy. And that was it. And six weeks later, we were on a flight to South Africa. I was blissfully unaware. It's like a phantom, you know, like a, a virginal pregnancy. You have no idea what to expect, I assume. So I didn't know what to expect, but that actually was a pivotal moment in my life. I had not only emigrated to South Africa, I also married that boyfriend in that period of time because it made it easier to kind of do the immigration process. So I was headed to a new country that I didn't know anything about with a boyfriend I really didn't know that well, turned into a disastrous first marriage, which I detail in the book. However, I really do look at all of that as a blessing because had I not made that leap, I really wouldn't have gained the trust in my ability to be brave. And I had to be when I was in South Africa because I had to quickly find a job, get somewhere to live and figure it out in the space of a few days. And, and in the book, I outline how I did it. And also, and I think more importantly about that lesson, the incredible help I was given by strangers, especially women in my industry, who quite literally, Shirley Gelb, who owned the salon I applied to for my first job there, fronted my rent money there. She took me home for dinner and gave me a job. So I think now always about paying it forward. There's something that comes with success. It's not just very happy to have it, but there's a responsibility that comes with it too. Pay it forward to the next person. Hey everyone, it's Yasmin here. I wanted to tell you a quick story. Before I started this podcast, I was working extremely long and crazy hours in banking and then in tech. I was totally burnt out, not living my truth and dreaming of always building my own empire. With all of this stress, it came really debilitating periods from bloating, cramping, extreme breast tenderness, and really unpredictable moods. I would always complain to my friends that I was literally out of commission for at least a week every single month. And that adds up to three months in every year. Other than feeling frustrated that my really bad periods were keeping me from pursuing my actual goals, I knew that something wasn't right. Women are not inherently designed to suffer every single month. That's when I learned about hormonal imbalances. I started working with functional medicine doctors who told me that years of stress combined with taking birth control pills long-term created a cascade of hormonal damage in my body. This is why I felt bloated, tired, crampy, and moody before and throughout my period. They recommended I try something called seed cycling. And let me tell you, it's changed my life. Seed cycling is the simple process of using food as medicine to naturally support your hormones. It uses four different types of seeds, yes, actual seeds, throughout your menstrual cycle to support the balance of hormones like progesterone and estrogen and give your body critical nutrients it needs to achieve your best health. Within weeks of starting this process, I noticed major shifts in my period and my overall health. 
But I also noticed that seed cycling is actually kind of hard to do. I wanted the best quality seeds freshly ground in the right amount, but it was very time consuming. So I decided to create a simple and effective way for anyone to start seed cycling today using the highest quality organic seeds in the right amounts with the right support. It's called Bia, and I'm so excited to bring it to you. Now, anyone struggling with hormonal imbalances can easily incorporate seed cycling into their busy schedule with the Bia Seed Cycling Bundle. This process has been life-changing for me. I no longer deal with cramps, bloating, breast tenderness, or any other PMS symptoms before my period. It's been a complete game changer, and it's allowed me to focus on things that matter most to me, like this podcast and building my own empire. And most importantly, I want this for you too. If you or anyone you know has been struggling with hormonal imbalances or bad periods, go to beawellness.com slash free. Once again, it's beawellness.com slash free to download our free guide to our top tips in tackling hormonal imbalances and to learn more about our seed cycling bundle. We included this link in the show notes along with a promo code for $10 off for all of our Behind Her Empire listeners. I know you're going to love seed cycling just as much as I do. Thanks for listening. Listening, and now let's get back to the show. Absolutely. I mean, that was one of my questions, you know, being in such a tough time, going through a difficult partnership in a new country and just having that support system is so key. So what a blessing it is that you had an incredible group of women and, you know, fast forwarding to your life today, you are paying it back. So you are an incredibly big inspiration. And, you know, one thing I want to go to that you mentioned is, and I see this throughout your life and we'll touch upon more instances, but just how much you are very intuitive and you do trust your gut, right? right? You really trust the universe. So this is something that I continue to work on. And I know as an entrepreneur, you know, like you've said, all the answers are within you. And I hear that quite a bit. So as someone who's listening, who might not be trusting themselves, like what advice do you have for us to tune into that gut and not really always listen to what other people might want of us or other people's expectations? Well, you can start out small. You don't have to emigrate to the other side of the planet. You can start out small by saying, you know, and I talk in the book also, as you know, Yasmin, tiny things I did in preschool that made me feel I had a sense of ownership of myself and of who I was and what I wanted to be. Small steps to being brave. And those small steps, when they start to work out for you, you learn to trust first yourself. Once you can trust, I can do this. I can walk into that party. It might be something small. I can go to this party on my own. I don't need to be with someone. I can go out for dinner on my own. I'm going to go for dinner, sit at a table. I'm going to order my dinner. Maybe I'm going to order a drink as well. And I'm not going to take a book. And I'm not going to look at my phone. I'm going to sit there at the table and I'm going to look around and I'm going to, you know, be absorb what's going on around me. I don't have to feel awkward. I don't have to go and make conversation. I don't have to be a people pleaser. I'm just very content sitting on my own. Now, the first time you do it is absolutely bloody awful. I mean, you feel, you know, shocking. This happened to me many years ago when I would travel for work and I would always have room service. And after, you know, about, I guess, a couple of months of doing that, I just made myself 
And I think probably somebody suggested it to me just like I'm doing now. And I thought, oh, for goodness sake, I can go down and have dinner in the hotel, right? And then I made it out the hotel. And then I remember once I was in Italy and I thought, I don't know this, this city. How am I going? I'll just go round the corner from the hotel, whatever the first restaurant is that isn't horrifically expensive. I'll go in there. And even if I order, you know, a sandwich, I'm going to do it. So start small. And then when you learn to trust it and you realize, well, not only was that okay, I actually really enjoyed it. I feel, I think I'll go for a walk now after dinner. And, you know, obviously you play it yourself safe. You make sure you're safe, etc. And once you start to trust it and you start to notice these signs that are reassuring you and they are there, they're encouraging you to do it, you'll start to seize opportunities to do things on your own. And when that starts happening and it pays off for you, you slowly learn to trust. So I certainly did not charge off trusting myself completely. None of us know how to do anything until the first time we do it. None of us learned how to walk. We didn't appear out of the womb walking or upright, but we all, barring a medical issue, by the time we get to sort of preschool, we're all, you know, wandering around on two legs. So we all figure it out with a lot of daring, a lot of risking, and then a lot of growth. So bear in mind, if we have all learned to do something like walking or eating, feeding ourselves, speaking a language, then you can figure the rest of this out. You've got it. Gosh, I love that so much. And it's true. You know, some people ask me, how did you quit your stable job to start this business? And to your point, there's small little steps I did along the way. I switched careers multiple times. I switched industries. And it makes it so much easier the more you kind of put yourself out there. And to your point, you realize that it's not that scary. And you build that courage and that bravery. So I think that's such a great point to just start small in your everyday life. Because I think that's something that everybody listening can do to start today to really move forward in their goals and their dreams. So I love that. Yeah. And remember that bravery isn't the absence of fear. It's the ability to move forward when you're terrified. So don't think brave people aren't scared. They are. People say to me sometimes, you know, I speak a lot in public and they say, don't you ever get nervous when you're going to speak? Absolutely. Of course I do. However, I've now learned to trust that what's the worst thing that's going to happen? Okay, you're going to go blank in front of a thousand people or whatever. Well, so all you do is own it. You just say, do you know, I've completely forgotten what I was about to say. Anyway, and then you have a, a segue, you move into something else, it will come back to you. The thing that's freezing your mind is that fear. So just own it. Everyone in the audience is behind you. They're not there to sabotage you. So go forward with fear. <laughs> I, I love that. No, that's beautiful. It's leaning into the fear. That's the only way to get through that. So I love that example. So going back a little bit back to your South Africa days, there's a story that really stands out in your book where you talk about your first client, Miss Heard, and the impact she really made around your why. I would love for you to share that story and a bit more about Miss Heard. Yeah. In fact, she was a client of mine earlier. She was a client of mine in, in England when I was doing my apprenticeship. So as an apprentice, you know, you're still learning, you're not fully qualified. So I was allowed to give treatments, you were required to give treatments on Tuesdays and Fridays to paying clients, but the clients paid a little less, well, a lot less actually than they would to somebody who was, you know, in the salon. 
So I had a client that used to come to me and she came to me at least once a week and her name was Mrs. Hurd. I never knew her first name because we never called clients by their first names then. But what I did know about her, she would give me a very small tip. She would take it out of a coin purse. And when she opened up her bag, I saw that she had a free bus pass. And I knew she took two buses to get to me from wherever she lived because she would sometimes be late and she would tell me it was the second bus. Now, I grew up with the signs of not having extra money around, and I knew those signs. So it began to worry me that she was coming every week, and she was probably, if I think about it, in her 80s. And I thought, well, I felt sort of guilty that she was coming that often, and I was taking this money from her. And you know, I'm sure she had better things to spend on. This was, when I look back on it now, it was also me trivializing what I did because I was thinking, you know, she's in her 80s and I still thought of my work as somehow about pampering or indulgence or looking pretty or beauty, which I no longer do. She changed it for me. So after a, a few months of this, I said to her, after the treatment, I said, you know, Mrs. Hurd, I just wanted to tell you, it's not necessary to come to me every week. You could come every four to six weeks. That would be absolutely fine for your skin. And she leaned forward. She thought for a minute, she put her hand on my arm and she said to me, do you know, dear, I'd like to come as often as I do. This is the only place anyone ever touches me. And in the book, I say that I always tear up when I tell a story, and I still do, because as I'm telling you, I see her in front of me, and I realize, you know, at the time, I wasn't a philosophical, necessarily deep thinker. I thought, ooh, that's sort of odd. That's sort of weird. Isn't that strange? I now realize she was being incredibly honest, and of course, she was lonely. And she taught me, as a result of that interaction, that what we do not just in my industry, but in almost every industry, including what you're doing now, Yasmin, it's not anything bigger or greater than human connection because that is the most important thing to human beings. I know that during the pandemic, the thing that we have all noticed and realized is the kindness and empathy and human connection that we only get from being with each other is unmatched in any other way. And so I really hope that will stay with us because I believe as much of a turning point as that was in my career, it redefined how I thought of my work. It redefined how I taught what I do. It redefined how I developed the products we ultimately developed. I think that if we all take that as a this moment as a reset, we could actually, I do believe we can reset the planet. I think we're in a political revolution. I think we're in a cultural revolution, a planetary revolution, an industrial revolution, a social revolution. And so why not a personal revolution as well? Absolutely. And I think if anything, the past year, people have begun to realize how important human connection is in our own life. I think we all took it for granted before COVID. So it's true. And it's beautiful to see how it really shifted your own why and your mission and really allowed you to build Dermalogica and everything you touched even to this day. So it's amazing to hear that story. So 
thinking about, you know, you were in South Africa working at different salons. And I know, I believe you met another gentleman that eventually moved to the US. I think you guys were just dating at the time. And it really, you know, opened your eyes to potentially moving with him as well. And that was a whole new journey in your life. So take us back to that moment of this guy who you're dating gets up and moves to the US. (laughs) And you know, your inspiration to join him. Well, you know, the United States, if you've never emigrated to the United States, I will tell you, it was the golden ticket in Willy Wonka's chocolate bar. You did not say no, especially to a green card. You know, he had been in process <laughs> for a green card and you have to wait for that. It takes about five years and you have to leave the country and then you come back in to claim your green card and they give you 90 days to claim it. So I had left my first husband, and again, all this is detailed in the book, should you be so interested, but I left my first husband, and now I was waiting for my divorce, and the divorce laws then were that I had to wait a year, I had to be separated for a year, and then at least two years before the divorce could be heard. So I knew I was locked down there for at least three more years, yeah. So Raymond and I started dating about a year after my marriage. I was separated and I was still in process. And his green card came through. We'd been dating for about 10 months. And he told me, you know, by the way, I told you I was in process for my green card. It's come through. And But now I, I, he was a little bit torn because we were very serious. And I said, no, 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 no. You have to go. You have to. Of course you do. And if I'm meant to be with you, if we're meant to be together, we will. And I don't know how that will work because I had fully intended to go back to the UK. So off he went to America. So basically, you know, we split up because we're not going to do long distance. There was no email. There was no FaceTime. You'd be right. right. You'd be a carrier pigeon practically. So off he went. I had a job with an American company called Redken. And which is, of course, still huge. And they were then based in Los Angeles and privately owned by Paula Kent Meehan. And I got asked to come on an advanced training program. And I came to LA. And as it would happen, Raymond had originally gone to Chicago and had ended up in LA. And so we ended up in the same city. I was in LA for five weeks and doing a training program. We met up and I said, you know what? It's real. This is the real deal. We both knew it. It was very significant. I have to figure this out. I have to figure out how I'm going to get into America. And I obviously, I wanted to do it legally because it was just easier to get a lease and a driving license and everything else. And that's what I did. So I knew when I first saw Raymond in a salon in Cape Town, I knew he was going to be significant in my life. And when I then started dating him in Johannesburg, I realized, oh, this is what it's all about. You know, I really am in love with him. And then when I realized a couple of years later, no, we were both meant to be together in America. I just, that was sort of one of my, you know, OG moments of, okay, none of this stuff is random. It's all meant to lead to something. It's like, you know, it's like the dot to dot puzzles. I call it this in the book. You know, those join, connect the dot puzzles when we're kids. You're staring at the dots, but you cannot see what it is. And when you start to join it up, one, two, three, and if you make a little misstep, you erase it and you go back and pick up the right consecutive numbers, you suddenly realize, oh my gosh, this is a zebra. Well, you were staring at those dots all the time. How did you not see that before? Well, you only see it when you start 
to connect those dots and move forward. And I just think my life and our lives are exactly like that. I think the dots are there and you'll figure it out as you just move forward. Oh my goodness. I have so many questions right there. You know, you said that you met Raymond in South Africa and this was your love and he got up and left to the U.S. You know, any other person, and I'm sure you were, would be heartbroken and not as positive thinking that one day if it's meant to be, you'll connect. I mean, have you always been optimistic in general? Because it's pretty amazing to hear how it actually all unfolded and you both happen to be in LA, but anyone else who might be in that situation would be devastated and not even know, you know, what might happen. And I was, I was, I mean, I left the, I took him to the airport with friends and, and for his flight to America. And I left. I left the airport. It was in the evening. It was nighttime in South Africa. I drove straight to my best friend's cottage. She lived out in the boonies outside of Johannesburg. And I literally fell in through her front door. And I, I think I said, you know, get me a drink immediately. <laughs> I'm tonight. You know, just keep talking to me. I was, de- I was devastated because I was so sure that this was, you know, had I made another misstep, like I was, I hadn't even got divorced from the first person. Now I, what's happening now? I mean, I was sure this was meant to be the person. So it wasn't like I left and said, goodbye, you know, the universe will take care of us. Not at all. I was inconsolable that weekend. It was a Friday night and it, I was inconsolable. And Monday morning I drove to work from her house. I stayed the whole weekend. And I do, I vividly remember I was driving to work, tears running down my face, which I was really upset about because I had my makeup on and everything. But as I was crying, I thought, I don't know what the hell I'm going to do. I'm going to do something. This has to work out. I'm either going to feel better in a few months time, or I'm going to be dating someone else or, you know, please God, universe, whatever deity you pray to, just show me the signs. I'm listening. I'm paying attention. I will follow whatever opportunities I see. And so some rambling version of that was what I was saying to myself on that drive to work. And I waited and I honestly didn't have to wait long. I took that flight. I was offered that trip to Ray left in May. And I was offered that trip in September by Redken, and I went. And I was back in the States with a visa in January of 83. Oh, my goodness. I just love, you know, looking back at your story because it just shows, you know, sometimes to trust the universe and hearing your examples. And this is one of many is just proving that concept. So you're in L.A. with Raymond. It all worked out. And I know at the time the U.S. had quite high unemployment and you were on the search for a job. I'd love for you to take us back to the time because I know there was a few surprising things that you learned in your journey of trying to find the right salon for you to work at. Yeah. Well, first of all, here I come. I didn't realize there was a 10.4% unemployment rate in California, which was really daunting. But however, it's okay because I've got my skill set. I'm going to work in a salon. Then I start thinking, okay, now how are you going to find a salon? Now, again, remember, it's before the internet, it's before any of that. So I get out the yellow pages, which was the telephone directory of businesses. And I start looking for skincare. And the first thing I noticed was there's no one listed under skin anything. Then I turned to beauty, and I never considered our work beauty, but beauty salons, it was all hair. And then somebody told me, look under cosmetician, which was a word I didn't use. I didn't know. I look under that, and there were like 
maybe eight salons listed and they were all sort of what I call Helga of Hungary, sort of. They were all European and they were all in Beverly Hills in LA. So when I dug in, I start, I called, I went on a few interviews. Everyone who owned these skincare salons were European. They were either Romanian, Czech, Hungarian, Italian, German, French, Russian. And they all had their own little sort of like doyen empire, if you know what I mean. They had their own products. They had their own salon. They had their own following. And I was offered, a, I interviewed at two of them. I was offered a job at one. And But in my interview process, what I realized was the reason they're all owned, all these salons are owned by European people is because Europe has a training, which is a two-year training full-time and then a one-year apprenticeship. And the, the qualification in America did not exist. Mm-hmm. So in order to do skincare, you had to be a cosmetologist, a hairdresser, in all but seven states. California had a new license called the Cosmetician License, and the training was about four months, 600 hours. So there was this enormous gap of skills. And so the light bulb moment for me was, if I could teach the people who want to do this work and already have this 600-hour license, if I could upskill them to the two-year training that we have in Europe, they could own their own business, and I could make a living teaching. And that's what we started. We started as an education company and three years later launched Dermalogica because we realized there was no American-made professional salon product either. It was kind of crazy. I mean, who knew? Who knew? And I thought, if it's not in Los Angeles, it's not anywhere in this country. It's not like there's going to be a secret enclave of skin therapists in, you know, Idaho, at least not that I was aware of. So if it wasn't happening in New York and it wasn't happening in L.A., it wasn't happening anywhere. And New York didn't even have any kind of license for skincare. Everyone that was working in skincare then in New York City was on the Upper East Side and had been grandfathered in with a European qualification. So same thing. Incredible. Oh, my goodness. So many questions there. So going back a little bit, you have this aha moment, right? You come from in South Africa and England. You see a lot of people, you know, working with skin and you know, no one in the States is really doing that except this small niche that you found in Beverly Hills. So did you ever question yourself as someone who didn't have a lot of money in the States, right? You didn't have a credit score to no. help you get a lease for even starting to educate. You know, no. the unemployment rate was high. Did you ever question yourself about even taking this next step? Because it seems like a big step for someone who just arrived and yeah. is figuring out what to do. So take us back to those very, very early days of the idea and yeah. the business. No, I did. I had to figure this out because there was no plan B. I didn't have a backup plan. I have a skill set. So I was going to do that. So I thought, okay, what's the worst thing that could happen? Well, the worst thing that could happen is I'll get a job in a department store. No, it's not bad. This is great. I've done this before too. But I could get a job in a department store selling skincare because even though my qualification might not be recognized here, I had to do the American qualification as well. So before that, even though my qualification might not exist here, I certainly know skin and I understand skincare and I've worked with a lot of different products. I can get a job doing that. I know they've got department stores. I can do that. Also, I got my first job in a hair salon at 13 working on the weekend. I can give a darn good shampoo. I could work at a salon shampooing hair. I don't, I don't mm. mind whatever I do. There's honor 
in every work that you can do. I would do anything. I've cleaned salons. I've sieved wax pots. I've used methylated spirits to clean mirrors and wash basins and pulled hair out of wash basins more than you. I've done so much laundry. I couldn't even begin to count because there's an enormous amount of laundry. I could, you know, work in a laundromat or something. I mean, I, in my head, had these plans and I would just have to figure it out. And that's what we did. I de- And it's obviously detailed, you know, in my writing because, and also, you know, I was 24 years old. It's all going to be fine. I mean, I can, one thing that did happen, which was very encouraging, I went for a sightseeing little walk up Rodeo Drive on that visit I had with Redkin. And I walked into the Courage Boutique and a woman in there who was helping, she sort of asked me if I needed anything. And of course not. I didn't have any even money to pay <laughs> parking, let alone anything in there. I just wanted to see what was going on in there. And she said to me, do you live here? And I said, no, I'm planning to though. I'm moving here. And I said that before I even had a visa because I like to manifest things that I want to happen. And she said, well, if you want a job, I'll give you a job. And I said, oh, I don't know anything about, I mean, I'm not in fashion. She said, no, but you could sell a lot of clothing with that accent. So I thought, oh, I've got a superpower skill I didn't even know. I've got this accent, which apparently I could get a job with this lovely person. So I had this kind of very immature, although I felt very reassuring attitude of, I will, I can figure this out. I can do something. Exactly. And your plan B wasn't as bad. You know, you can just go get another job. And I think sometimes we can be so intimidated about taking a risk. But when you really think about it, you know, what's the worst case scenario? You go back and you get a job. You live with your parents. I mean, there's so many different pillars that you can take. And I think it just makes that jump so much easier to digest. So just hearing the way you rationalize it, because you really just have to rationalize it to yourself and be comfortable with the decision. So hearing that. Yeah, yeah. I didn't didn't know anyone, only Raymond. So no one was going to say, I mean, there was no one to approve or disapprove or we were, you know, free as a bird. And in your 20s, it's uh, what's the worst thing that can happen? Exactly. And I believe in another interview, you mentioned, you know, you weren't really telling too many people about this idea early on. You mentioned you were like opening, I believe, tea shops. (laughs) That was one idea. One idea was what can we, so Ray and I used to sit and we'd say, okay, listen, we've just got to get a vehicle. We can figure this out. What are we going to do? We went through tea shops. We went, somebody said dry cleaners. You can make a lot of money in dry cleaners. Well, we didn't know anything about dry cleaning, but then they said they'll send you on a course if you, you know, want to do a franchise. So we thought, okay, well, don't really, okay, well, that's on, put that on the list. I mean, every time I saw we're hiring, although remember it was a 10.4% unemployment, so there wasn't too much of that. But even now, when I go free, every place I walk past, everyone's hiring. And every time I see the sign, even now, I think that's deeply reassuring. Look, I mean, and I could get a job. If everything else goes south, I could still work. I mean, as crazy as it sounds, the knowledge that you can somehow secure work is hugely empowering because that means you will have choices and options. You know, money isn't something I've ever pursued bluntly. I believe rewards come when you follow your purpose and you follow your heart. I truly believe that. And the rewards are sometimes in different forms. But I believe that that I would get that security. And so that I didn't ever pursue it. And I think that if you do, it can be elusive. I feel strongly that that's not the root of happiness. The root of happiness is being able to just be financially independent so you can have choices and options. That's success. Having 
self-determined life is success to me. And the fact that you created this training program to empower other women with the right skill sets and you're gifting that and you continue to gift that to so many women. It's just so, so inspiring. So you have this idea and Raymond's all about it. You guys are thinking about training, you know, these American aestheticians because they don't have that background. Tell me more about how you secured the first lease you had and created awareness as two people who didn't have a big network starting out. Yeah, no network. So Ray got a job. He wanted to get a job that had a car allowance. So he took a job as a sales rep, really for the gas and mileage more than anything else. But he took a job that was commission only because, well, they weren't paying a salary. It was a Japanese company called Takara Belmont. And they're still huge throughout the world in supplying hairdressing equipment, chairs, basins, bowls, you name it. If you go into a salon in America or pretty much anywhere in the world, that equipment has likely been supplied by Takara Belmont. So he took a job with them because they wanted to launch a skincare equipment line in this market, which didn't exist. So Ray already knew from my experience, okay, well, I don't have too many options to sell this, but I'm going to take it because I get a car allowance at least. So he gets this job selling skincare equipment. We come up with this brilliant idea. If he's going to sell any of this really fantastic equipment, steamers, cupping machines, electric brushing machines, none of it was being used in salons in the States. If he's going to have any chance of selling this, we're going to have to put together a kind of a show and tell day, a demonstration day. Let's invite everyone to an event at the showroom, to Cora Belmont showroom, which happened to be in Compton, which isn't the center of LA and it was kind of out of the way and doesn't have a super great safe reputation, but we didn't know any of that. So we just sent the invitation out to people that had the license and we bought the license from the State Board of Cosmetology in Sacramento for $25, which, you know, who knew you could do that? But we found that out by calling them. And we sent a postcard out saying I was doing this free class. We had standing room only the first Monday that I was teaching it. And I knew then there is a huge demand for this. So I taught those classes every Monday for a year. Ray was selling equipment. And in that time, I persuaded Takara Belmont to back me with some equipment equipment, give me six months to pay it off if I could find premises. So I did not have a car or a car allowance. So I found I would have to be within walking distance of our one bedroom apartment in Marina Del Rey. So I just started looking for empty space. And as you say, I didn't have a credit card. I didn't have credit rating. And I was walking in just explaining what I did and showing my postcards of my class. And everyone said no. I mean, one person said, no, we don't rent to beauty salons. And another said, we won't rent to anyone doing massage and kind of looked at me like, you know, I was a vice worker. So I said, wow. I mean, you know, it was all bizarre to me. But I walked into this office that had been empty ever since we'd been living in the marina for about 10 months then. And it was right next door to the social security office and it had never leased and it was a thousand square feet. And I found the the renting agents, the office was in the building upstairs. And I went in and they said, if you can give us six months rent up front, we'll sign a lease. And that's what I did. We actually scraped together what we had been working. I had some savings. I think we scraped together enough for three months and persuaded just on relentless enthusiasm, persuaded them if they would rent for a year and then after just give us a year and then we would sign a longer lease after that. And that's what we did. 
amazing to see just a creativity behind getting things done, right? When you're strapped for cash, sometimes just being very creative with how you approach, whether it's a lease and, you know, we'll talk about your contract manufacturer. There are so many ways to figure things out. So it's beautiful to see that. You know, one thing you did have the demand of these classes, but I'm sure a lot of people, like you've said, when you were trying to find a lease, they thought you were crazy, right? With what you were trying to bring to the market. And I believe, I think it was your husband that said, it's okay to piss off. I think 80% of people. So tell me more about that because I think that's a really fundamental business and life principle that can resonate with a lot of people. Yeah, I I do too. So first of all, Ray was working in the skincare equipment company. And so we were in touch, getting to know a lot of people that were in the industry. So these are people that are already selling hairdressing equipment already in the beauty distribution kind of wholesaler uh, arena. So we started telling people to begin with, we did start telling them what we were going to do because we wanted them to maybe send us students, you know, send us business. And one of the top people on the West Coast said to me, okay, tell me exactly what you're going to do. So I said, you know, we're going to upskill people that already have this four-month license to be, no, he said, okay, here's the thing. That's not going to work. First of all, it's not going to work because if they're already licensed, why do they need you? They don't need you to go to work. They'll, they can just start working. And I said, no, but I'm going to be teaching them the skills to be successful because right now we don't have an industry. And he said, and there's a very good reason for that too. Do you know why Americans don't have facials, as he called it? I call it a skin treatment. And I said, well, because there isn't an industry. He said, but do you know why? Because Americans wash their own face. We don't need to go to someone to have them clean our face. And I'm listening to this man. This is a sophisticated person. What is he talking about? And I realized, oh my gosh, okay. If he really thinks that's what this industry is about that I'm in, we have a huge opportunity because this guy is in the industry and has never even thought of this. And I know from my work and my travel, this is a, a service and a product that consumers want. Never mind the industry, consumers want this. And if consumers want this, then we have a niche that we can train people to offer it. So we just doubled down. We just doubled down on it and said, we're going for it. So when it then came to when we were going to develop Dermalogica, the product, so many naysayers, they didn't, couldn't say the name. They'd say Dermatologica. They did, they, we would say the T is silent. There is no T, but people just somehow insert it. They didn't like the packaging. They thought it was ugly. It was so perfunctory. We didn't use gold jars. We didn't use cellophane. We used contamination-free packaging. We didn't use mineral oil or fragrance. People say, why don't you make it smell nice? I don't like the smell. Ray said to me, listen, Jane, We have to be prepared. If we're going to be different, if we're going to make a brand and not a product, we have to have a voice that's unique. And that means if you're unique, anyone who's unique, anything that's unique, you're going to piss off 80% of the people, but you're going to turn on 20%. And that's the 20% we want. Don't worry about the 80%. You can't please everybody. And 
we adopted it as our business mantra. Not that we set out to upset people, but plenty did get upset with what we were doing. And I've used it as a personal mantra. You can't be afraid to upset people. Worry when you're sort of not upsetting anybody because it means you're extremely palatable, maybe somewhat bland and inoffensive. And I think if that's a product or brand or a person, it's likely not disruptive. And we needed to be disruptive. So, yeah. And what I appreciate about just your mentality, you know, so far, anytime you hit a crossroads or you had negativity around what you're building, you and Raymond have such an abundance mindset around what you're creating. You know, you never felt like that was going to stop you in your tracks. You always looked at it as with a positive lens, which I think is so important if you're trying to disrupt an industry and build a business from scratch, because as you know, every day there could be hardships. And if you're not having the right mental health and, you know, optimistic and having that strong why, I'm sure it could be so much more difficult. So just it's beautiful to see that theme throughout your life. And, you know, talking about the Dermalogica, going back to the product, I know you guys, you know, you don't have chemist backgrounds. You had to find someone to work on these products and you wanted to come out with, I believe the first line was 27 products. So that's not cheap. So tell me more about how you funded that and found someone to create that. Cause I know even now, you know, building a product and finding the right person is probably one of the toughest parts of starting a business. Yes. And we really did not have a lot of money. We had $14,000. We self-funded everything on $14,000 because we could not. So now Dermalogica is 1986. So we had, Ray had been in the States by then four years. I had been here three and teaching that whole time. And we realized the big gap was a product. So now how are we going to develop a product? So first of all, we thought we'll import a European product and we'll distribute that. That's the easiest thing to do, right? But then we realized by the time we bring in the product and you pay customs and duties and and I didn't the product that was coming in, I didn't like. I personally have eczema and dermatitis. I can't okay. use anything with lanolin in it or fragrance or color because if I do, first of all, my hands break out if I'm applying it as a skin therapist. And secondly, my skin breaks out. I get rashes from fragrance and you get breakout from artificial color and lanolin. I mean, I can't wear a wool sweater. I could just itch myself to death. So I couldn't use these European products. They all had one or other. And I said, Ray, I can't stand behind a product that I don't believe in. So he said, well, then find a bloody product that doesn't have those ingredients. I said, there isn't one. This is way before anyone was talking about clean beauty, clean anything, right? So... A friend of ours came to visit us from South Africa who was an entrepreneur and a pharmacist. And he said to me, well, why don't you develop your own products? And I said, we're not chemists. We can't do it. He said, Jane, for goodness sake, there's plenty of chemists out there. Find a chemist that can make it for you, that can do the formulas. And then take it around to a contract manufacturer. And we had done that in South Africa with, we, not that we developed a product, but we had seen that done in the companies we'd worked in. So yeah, okay, well, how do we find a chemist? So I spoke to my good friend, my chemist friend from Redken, Dr. Diana Howard, who late after that became our chemist at Dermalogica for 20 odd years. But I spoke to Diana and I said, how am I going to find a chemist? And she said, oh my God, start calling chemists. There's a directory of cosmetic chemists. Well, that directory is, you know, four inches thick. 
So then I spoke to another friend of mine who had just taken a gig. He was also a Redken chemist, and I'd met him on my trip here. And he said to me, you want to use a lot of botanicals, right? And I said, yes, I want to use a lot of essentials and botanicals. He said, you should call the raw material companies that sell those ingredients and ask who they're selling those ingredients to on the West Coast. Because if you call any chemist in the book, they're using mineral oil, they're using fragrance, they're not going to know how to do this. So that's what I did. I called a, a supply company in New Jersey called Tri-K, and I asked them if they were supplying any of their botanical ingredients to the West Coast. They gave me a list of 70 chemists. So I start calling the 70, and it was all on the phone because there was no email or anything like that. So that every, most didn't take my call. I got through to about 10 or 11. And of those, only a few would agree to meet with us. And the few that agreed to meet with us, there were three that we felt that wanted to do it, that said, I can make a product like that. Most said, look, you can't have that. I can't eliminate all of that and SD alcohol and formaldehyde. And you don't want any of these ingredients in. I don't know how to do that. That's a huge R&D research and development issue. But there were three that said they could make it. And of the three, only one would accept the fact that we wouldn't pay for the formulas up front. So we really didn't have a big choice. That process took about a year to find the right chemist. So when we found this chemist, we couldn't pay him up front. So we cut a deal and I go into more detail in the book, but basically we agreed to pay him a percentage of manufactured product for two years. So in other words, we're not giving equity. This is really important. We were not giving a percentage of the business. We were giving a percentage of the cost to manufacture not the retail cost. So we weren't giving a percentage of sales because if we didn't sell any of it, we wouldn't owe him money, right? So it was a percentage of the manufactured. That way we knew that we were only going to be giving him a piece of whatever we made and reordered because we were giving nothing on the first order. And he agreed to that. We also agreed that it would be a two-year payout and he agreed to that. So now we've got a chemist who can make the formulations and I and write the briefs of what those will be. And I na we named them in one afternoon, literally, sitting around our apartment complex pool. So then I we have to find someone who can make the product. So again, we call contract manufacturers who are working with botanicals because the process is a little bit different. And most wouldn't see us. The ones who would see us wanted a minimum run of 25,000. Now that's absurd. You know, we figure we've got about maybe a hundred students now we've been teaching for a few years that will take the product, maybe a hundred. 25,000 <laughs> each product is absurd. So we end up going to see a contract manufacturer called Gordon Labs. Still, they still exist here in LA. We still use, we did use them up until some years ago when the owner that we worked with retired. But anyway, we go to see that we literally fell on our sword. We said, listen, we've emigrated here. This is what we've done so far. This is how we got a lease. We've got no money, but we've got a big dream. We literally pour our heart out to the owner of this contract manufacturer. All we're asking you to do is find 500 units of each product, just 500 units. We will bring you the packaging. We will source 
you know, packaging that nobody wants. We don't know what we're going to what we're going to do yet. We will get it. We have no plan B. Help us. Five hundred units. You can make it on the bench almost, meaning you don't <laughs> into a big production. You could pretty much make it in your bath, but we weren't going to do that. And for no explicable reason, Morgan Gaffney, who owned Gordon Labs, looked at us after about an hour of this, you know, <laughs> this dog and pony show, and said, "Look, <laughs> I hear this pitch all the time." I will tell you, 98% of the people that pitch me never get to the point of selling a product. However, for some reason, I like you two. I'm willing to, listen, I'm willing to take a bet. We'll make 500 of each product. I will do a run. You will pay me for them, but I will give you 90 days to pay once we've launched. And let's see where it goes. I feel like taking a risk. And really, it wasn't that much of a risk for him, right? He had the raw materials. He had the chemist. He had it all. And we said, we'll never forget it. And we never did. They were our contract manufacturer for many, many years. So, yeah. (laughs) Incredible. And, you know, we hear this story quite a bit because when you are starting out, even to this day, you know, the minimums for a lot of contract manufacturers are so high. And you just have to get in front of them and hope that you connect with someone, build a rapport, and that they really believe you. Because I've heard that so many times just still calling, cold calling different people. So, you know, really finding that person that believes in you as a person is so key. And it's beautiful to see how that worked for you guys. And be honest, you know, don't, we didn't go in and pretend that we were chemists. We didn't go in and say, you know, we've got, I couldn't tell them I've got an MBA or a chemistry degree. I don't. Own your authenticity, own who you are, because it's that authenticity. I honestly, I trust this completely. If it's not right, it's not going to happen. If they dismiss you, you never wanted to work with them. If they're rude to you and chuck you out, well, good job they never said yes, because look what horrible people there. I mean, I just be yourself. Everyone else is taken. No one will ever be as truly you as much as you can. I say the same thing for pitching. You know, I used to fly to New York and pitch the editors and I didn't know an editor. I went and sat in Vogue's, you know, downstairs room at Condé Nast. I wanted to see Shirley Lord, who was then the beauty editor of Vogue. I didn't know that you just couldn't do that. I didn't know that you couldn't, you had to wait for an appointment. And I literally caught her as she walked towards the elevator and I was clutching a small cardboard box of our first products. And I just pitched. I mean, I, there was no backup plan and we didn't get, I will tell you, she didn't say, oh, this is fantastic. I'm giving you a feature in Vogue. It took years before we got a feature in Vogue. But what she did say to me was, I like what you're saying. Keep at it. And I thought, wow, wow. I mean, I will. And so I started writing op-ed pieces for our trade magazines and got pressed that way. Just whatever you can do, do it. Keep making the dots. They may seem random. They will all join up. That's so great to hear because I think like you mentioned, you know, even if it's contract manufacturer pressing for a pitch for PR, sometimes we can be insecure about our own credentials. Like who am I to start this business? Or in your case, you know, I'm not a chemist, but doubling down on who you are and being authentic to you is always the best thing. And, you know, people will resonate with it or people won't. And like you said, that's a good thing if they don't. That's not someone who you want as part of your team. So I think that's just such a good reminder to hear in your story. So 
you know, you found this chemist, you found a contract manufacturer. I know before you launch, I actually want to talk about some shifts that happen with the chemist, because I think so early on, these big surprises can really take a business back. And I know at that time, it was big for you. So can you share more about that moment really close to when you guys were launching? Yeah, so the chemist took about nine months, that journey of, of developing the product, and he, became, he started to become sort of increasingly needy. You know, he told us that to drive to Marina Del Rey, he was in Torrance, he needed gas money. I mean, this is like ridiculous. Mm. So, okay, fine. He started to ask us, you know, would we be prepared to give him a small stipend because he was working on this project at weekends? And, you know, we didn't really have any money, but I think we gave him a couple of hundred dollars or something, you know. Trust me, you know, we had no extra money. But it became increasingly obvious that he was going to be more demanding and kind of we felt like it's going to be an issue. And sure enough, it did. And he came to us and said that he needed a car, his car broken down, and he needed a new car. And we said, we can't buy you a car. We can't, I mean, I don't even have a car at that stage. So what we agreed was that we would pay a lease for a car. And I think the lease was like $240 a month. But we had a bad feeling about it. And I said to Ray, and he said the same to me, this isn't good. This isn't right. Something's not right. A month before we launched, he said that he wanted to be paid out for the formulas. Now, he owned the formulas at that stage. This idea of compensating him over a two-year period was our ability to buy those formulas back from him. So we would have had the formulas in two years' time on this formula of paying him a percentage of the manufactured product over two years. That would be our formula buy because formulas are about 10 grand a piece, even then. So we had 27 formulas. We had named them. We had now sourced packaging. We had printed the packaging. We had put everything we had and could borrow from our family into this. And now we are in December of 1985. We have booked our first trade show to launch the product in January of 1986 in Long Beach, biggest trade show in America for our industry, three-day trade show at Long Beach Convention Center. And he said to us, I want to be paid or I'm not giving you the formulas to manufacture. We could not make the product without the formulas. I'm not having the recipe. How much does he want? Well, he asked for something ridiculous and we eventually negotiated it down and we took $20,000, $15,000 Twenty thousand dollars. We were in that range. We didn't have it. I mean, we're just negotiating with air because we don't have it. Where are we going to get the money? So we agreed if we give him like a cashier's check, we'll get it for you know between fifteen and twenty for the, all the formulas because he needed to buy a car and that was what he wanted. I mean, it was so ridiculous. You can't even believe this. So we didn't have a credit card. We didn't have any money. We were living, you know, literally sort of paycheck to paycheck. We had a friend who certainly had a little bit of money. So we went to Tim Halfett, our friend. He was our friend then, he's still our friend. And we said, Tim, we need to get a credit card and we need to, for you to get a credit card, we need you to deposit $20,000 for us to open this credit card with a credit card and for 30 days in 30 days we're launching at the long beach trade show we will pay you back if we do not sell enough product to pay you back then we will pay you back you know we're good for it he trusted us he did it so we went to that trade show a month later with our product with twenty thousand dollars of debt to our friend that we had to pay back within the next few weeks 
And I said to everyone on the trade show, we have to open 10 accounts in three days of the show. 10 and 3, 10 and 3, 10 and 3. And we opened 10 accounts in the first three hours. And we did a million dollars in our first year. Incredible. And Jane, I'm curious, you know, if having that debt under you, do you think that motivated you to sell more or push you in any way looking back at that time? I think more than the debt, the obligation to a friend that trusted us, that was the thing. You know, we knew that we were paying Tim back. There was no way. We had not offered him equity also, by the way. And that's a theme I come back to a lot in the book because I say it's the last thing you should offer. We never did. When we went all the way through to acquisition, we still owned Dermalogica 100%. So that made a very, very smooth acquisition process. It's not that I'm saying you can't give away equity. Of course, sometimes you must. If it's the only thing open to you, if that had been our only option, I'm quite sure we would have considered it. But Tim was a friend of ours and knew us, and he knew we were good for it. And he knew that, you know, we'd been friends for many years back in South Africa. Ray had gone to college with him. So this was a long-standing friendship that we weren't going to walk away from. And that was more of a responsibility to us than anything else. Talking about how you and Raymond solely owned the business for so long, you know, when you guys were doing a million in sales in the first year, I know a lot of people were reaching out to lend money to you guys. And, you know, I'm curious how you've thought about funding because it was self-funded for many, many years until you sold a few years ago. But I'd love for you to share your perspective and mindset around funding the business. Well, look, if you're self-funding, it's going to make your growth slower, obviously, because, you know, there were plenty of times that we would have liked to have had some injection of cash, but not at the price that was being asked, which was a percentage of the business or a very high interest rate. You know, interest rates at that time were up in the double digits. So it was expensive to borrow money. It's much cheaper to borrow money right now. And money is, you know, very cheap to borrow right now, which is why you've got this huge temptation to borrow money, get get leverage. So it wasn't the case for us. And we don't come from a background or a family that had enormous debt. You know, it was, you paid what you spent and you you lived on what you earned. That was sort of the protocol we were both raised on. So it was a case of being in an industry that was incredibly unique in the fact that the salon industry was and still is the small salon industry, cash on delivery. So as UPS took the box, they picked up the payment. And the reason for that is traditionally the salon industry has a very low credit rating. So it's cash on delivery. We would not do business with chain salons or big spas that wanted 120 days to pay because we didn't want to carry the debt. So our sales force would, I remember one time they went to Las Vegas, our rep for Nevada, and she came back and said, look, I've got, you know, a $100,000 order from one of the big hotels, the casinos that's opening a spa because now it was getting traction. And we said no. And they said, are you crazy? Why would you? It's a $100,000 order. And we said, because they'll want us to carry it for several months. And that's too big a risk. We can't make that much product without being paid and put it in one, one salon's hands, one spa's hands and risk having to wait six months to be paid. Or if they're not successful, we never get paid. We'll get 20 cents on the dollar. We, that could take us under. 
So we were very, very careful about who we opened and who we sold to. And we turned down a lot of businesses that people would have thought we were crazy to say no to, but we did not want anyone to sink us. I've seen that happen too often in, in our industry. Large businesses or even large manufacturers go out of business because they've leveraged their debt too hard and, and they can't carry it if they don't get paid by one customer who's basically carrying all the revenue. Someone else having that much leverage in your business, I'm sure would even make it difficult to sleep at night. And I think you need peace of mind. So the way you guys were diverse and thoughtful, and I appreciate the fact that you slowly grew because, I, you know, to your point, capital is cheap right now. And you do see a lot of new entrepreneurs raising money and there's nothing wrong with that. But you just don't see the opposite of self-funding and slowly growing the business as examples as often as you used to, I think, in the era we are in now. Well, I think the Headlines all go to the ones that are raising VC, but here's the reality, Yasmin. First of all, even now, today, less than 4% of all funding goes to women. Now, I'm talking all funding, venture capital, private equity, banking, savings and loan, small business administration, less than 4% of traditional funding goes to women. If you're a woman of color, it's less than 1%. So that model is broken as far as I'm concerned for us. So mm -hmm. local entrepreneurs typically self-fund and put it on three credit cards. They self-fund $28,000 on three credit cards. Most salons started self-funding on three credit cards. I know it because I've lived in this industry my whole life. I refer to us as invisible entrepreneurs. We don't right. think about that florist, that mechanic, that dog groomer, that salon, that small independent bookstore. They've probably typically all self-funded. They're not the ones that grab the headlines, but they right. are the ones that make up our communities and our neighborhoods. And so I think now it, it, we have a responsibility to support those local entrepreneurs because they did not, most of them did not get any funding during COVID. Most of them have not received any of the pay protection loans because that was required for them to hire back the same amount of people and they were not sure if they would even be around to do that. So they didn't want to risk the debt. So this whole, you know, most of us got our first jobs in a local business. Small entrepreneurs, those employing less than 50 people, still make up 50% of all jobs in America. So those self-funded entrepreneurs, I promise you, are out there. They're on your high street. They're in your strip center. They're everywhere that we see and never see them because they're invisible to us. And yet we constantly hear about the startups that got a million dollar first round funding or, you know, it's, they're worth a billion dollars and they've never made a profit, but there's so much investment. But I want to see that same amount of equivalent funding going into all of our small businesses and our local entrepreneurs. And that's my big purpose. Again, it's always about that independence. And that's our big focus with our nonprofit initiative. And 100% of all book sales from Skin in the Game are going to our nonprofit initiative to fund local entrepreneurs. So I just want to underline that those entrepreneurs are still doing it. They're still out there, but they're not the ones grabbing the headlines. And they never had been. When, when we began to get attention for Domologic, 
Africa, we were probably 10 years, 12 years going. And people say, but how do I not know about you? And I'd say, well, if you went to a salon, if you bought your product in the salon, you absolutely know about us. But if you didn't, if you've always bought your product in a drugstore or a department store or on QVC or wherever else before the internet, you've probably never heard of us. With The Sunday Times of London once called us the best kept secret in the industry. And they called me the woman who started a cult because they only just, they said, this is like a bloody cult. When we started digging into your story, every salon we went into knew Dermalogica, but no one else did. And I said, well, that's right. We're strong and mighty, but somewhat hidden. To your point, there's so many incredible businesses and it's amazing. I never thought about the stats that they're employing 50%. Yes. That's amazing. And it breaks my heart because I know with COVID, a lot of the stores in my neighborhood had to unfortunately close. But I have been watching what your nonprofit has been doing since COVID. I know you really doubled down. So it's amazing to see how you are impacting the community and all of us, if we could, you know, continue to purchase from local stores and go and support your local restaurants. Yeah, please, please. You know, in this special, we're coming up for the holidays and I know it's easy It's so much easier to order from Amazon. You know, they'll deliver, package it. And I know that. And, you know, but let's take a small piece of that spending and just spend it local. Spend it in a local business. Spend it on a gift card to a local business or a local restaurant. This will make the difference between that business being around and not being around. And we, if we don't have our local businesses, I don't know about you, but I don't want to live next door to the Walmart shipping center. It's fantastic. They're a great retailer, but that's not my neighborhood. I want to live next door. I want to have a food store and a grocery store in my neighborhood. I want to have that coffee shop and that bakery. I want my kids to be able to get a job in those small businesses because that's who's going to hire them at 15 and a half. And I want to make sure that we preserve that local industry. So, you know, let's all make a point of support local. I did my book launch at a local bookstore in Brentwood in West LA, diesel bookstore in the Brentwood Country Mart. And the book sales that we made there were huge to that bookstore and would have been a drop in a bucket to a major retailer. So don't forget your community needs you. No, it's definitely a good reminder. And I just have goosebumps hearing that. That's so amazing to hear, especially as we gear up to the holiday season. So exactly. You know, one question I have just going back to your story with Dermalogica, you know, you never thought about selling the business until, you know, a few years ago, you were somewhat entertaining. So I'd love to hear how you thought about selling and the potential acquisition that ended up happening, because I know you and Raymond for so long were not entertaining those calls you were getting, despite all the success you had. We would get calls from who we used to call the usual suspects. So the big companies that we all could imagine who buy up entrepreneurial brands. And so we made a decision before we had children. We have two grown daughters. Before we had children, we made a decision that our children would not come into Dermalogica. They would not run the risk of of having to fulfill a dream that was ours and the responsibility of maintaining it. Ray and I both felt that that was an enormous burden, not necessarily an opportunity for them. And if for some inexplicable reason they would want to have their own skincare line, we would help them, support them, back them, but it wouldn't be Dermalogica. So that wasn't going to happen. It wasn't going to be a family passed down. So we then looked at, okay, we're either going to go public or we're going to sell. We didn't need funding. We were highly profitable. We looked at 
for two minutes, we looked at an IPO and friends that had done it told us, don't do it. We don't play well in the sandbox with other people. We're entrepreneurs, which makes you almost unemployable because you're so, you know, sort of self-opinionated. So it wasn't, that wasn't going to work for us. We didn't want to report to a bunch of shareholders. So it was going to be a sale. It was going to be an acquisition. And we didn't know when. And then once we got older, you know, you realize the death rate holds steady at 100%. So we have to think about what our runway is going to be. We want to have enough time to do all the other things we might want to do. I I want to work in the nonprofit space more. I always have done things, but I want to make a big impact. So we decided we would move to an acquisition in 2015. And so one company we didn't expect was the one that actually ended up as being our, our new home, and that's Unilever. And it was very simple, and I tell the story in detail. We followed a very predictably unpredictable path because we're entrepreneurs. We didn't do a sales sheet or a book. We had dinner with each of the CEOs that was looking to buy our company because we wanted to understand their value system. We wanted to know. It was like our child being adopted. We wanted to know who the new parents were going to be and not have any question marks. And what we found in Unilever both in the CEO at that time, Paul Polman, and in the current CEO, Alan Jope, who actually negotiated the deal for Domologica. He was one of the front people. We found a value system that we were aligned with. We found a company that took care of its workers and always has done since it was founded You know, over 100 years ago by Lord Lever who instigated the first old age pension in Britain. So, you know, this is a storied company with a very solid value system. And they were looking for a cornerstone to a new division of prestige skincare beauty. And they wanted Dermalogica. And we did the deal. We've I'm still involved heavily with Dermalogica. I'm still the chief visionary. You can still get the book at Dermalogica.com. And I'm really proud to say that our legacy is secure and we've gone from strength to strength. We train over 100,000 skin therapists a year now, every one of them with the opportunity to have their own business. And when the deal was inked with Unilever, as well as a compelling financial offer, which there was a bidding war and the other contenders had compelling financial offers too, Unilever promised to create 5 million jobs for women in their supply chain. And that was the golden ticket. That was the one that both Ray and I said, that's that's amazing. And so, yeah, so it was great. We felt good about it. We still feel good about it. And that was, and the story I detail in the book as being, because it was unpredictable and it was an unusual way to do it, but the way we did it was perfect for us. Yeah. And I've never heard somebody, you know, kind of pitch the acquisition opportunities the way you did going to dinners. But, you know, it's your baby, like you mentioned, and you want it to be in good hands. And, you know, we've had actually a few entrepreneurs on the podcast who also sold to Unilever and mentioned wonderful things. So it's great to kind of hear that with your journey as well. That's awesome. And, you know, I want to close on one last question with you. You know, I know you're a huge proponent of not allowing anyone, including yourself, to shrink your potential in living the life you deserve. So what advice do you have for women listening today to kind of help them stay in their own power? I think it starts with claiming your power. And where are you going to find your power when you don't feel you have any agency, perhaps? You're going to find your power in looking back at the things you've already achieved. 
I tell a story in the book of hiring someone at our front desk, as then would have been called receptionist, right? And she came in, it would have been her very, very first job. She was 19 years old, but she had raised four children, had left an abusive marriage and needed a job. Now, who was going to hire this person who had never had a job, got married and was pregnant at 16, et cetera, et cetera? By the way, she still works for Dermalogica. And we hired her because I said, do you get your children up in the morning and do you get them off to school dressed and, you know, with, with a lunch or a lunch voucher? And she said, yeah, absolutely. And I turned to Raymond and I said, if Michelle can get her kids out the door, four kids out the door, and they're all ready and they're washed reasonably clean and does it all again the next day, I said to her, you've got more than enough skill set to answer the phone in our company. And we never regretted it. She still tells that story as part of the Dermalogica story. So my point is, what have you already done that has you can claim power from? You've already got up and learned to walk, perhaps. You've already learned to feed yourself. You can dress yourself. You could, I mean, start from scratch. Have you raised children? Have you raised a pet? Have you fostered a pet? Have you signed a lease? Have you furnished an apartment? Have you bought a sofa? Did you manage to get credit for a car? Whatever it is, as small as it might be, can you bake killer banana bread? Write it down. Every single small thing that you have done, own it. And in all of that, I ask a question in the book, what did you love to do between the ages of nine and 12? Now you might think that's random, but indulge me for a minute. Think about it. What did you love to do? What did you do on your weekend? What toys did you play with? Did you have any toys? Think about it because somewhere buried in there is the nugget of what makes your heart light up. Now, maybe you own it as a hobby now. I'll tell you now, kids never talk about having hobbies, only adults, because for kids, it's real. So we're in a reset mode. We're in a revolution right now. This is the moment to seize. We're calling it the great resignation. It's not. For women especially, we've wanted more flexibility for decades. We have been on a treadmill of productivity and trying to balance everything. And now I really feel we've had a year and a half so far of reset. Do you want to go back to what you were doing before? And if you don't, you will have to claim your power and you can start small, claim it. It's there. I promise and assure you it is burning inside of you. It might just be a little flicker of a candle right now, but give it some space and oxygen. Give it some attention. It will be a furnace that will light you up. Oh, Jane, I am so inspired by you. Thank you for joining us today and sharing all your words of wisdom and having us own our power. It was such an honor to have you on today. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And I especially wish you luck in your reset. Look at you go. I mean, honestly, and thank you because you did that. I got to do this. So thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Behind Her Empire. If you enjoyed this conversation, it would mean the world to me if you would consider leaving a review or even sharing this episode with someone who might be inspired to create their own empire. 
To stay updated on new episodes or join our private community, visit BehindHerEmpire.com to sign up. We send inspiring and short emails every week to your inbox. I'll see you next week. And until then, remember, you're always in charge of your own destiny and it's never too late to start your own empire.